0: there do you love kindling conversation make your voice heard and vote for it at the australian podcast awards head to kindling.com.au slash vote but do it soon because voting closes april 1st
1: hi i'm siobhan hunt and this is kindling conversation a kindling kids radio podcast just a quick note before we get into the next episode If you haven't already, I'd love you to rate and review Kindling Conversation wherever you get your podcasts, or if you enjoy the episode, share it with your friends. All right, thank you, and on with the show. When my husband and i met we had a very clear idea about what work was in our lives it was something we were passionate about something that fulfilled us in more ways than money on its own could we've been together now for 16 years six of those with a child or children to care for we have two now and our ideal hasn't worked out quite the way we expected The main issue for us has been financial insecurity. Doing what we loved meant being part of the casual workforce, which meant never knowing how much income we would earn or how much childcare we would need. It's not just people in creative industries that struggle through uncertain work hours and paydays. The casualisation of the workforce has been a big thing, and it was meant to lead to more flexibility that people, especially families, need. But I can't help feeling that it isn't working. At least it feels like the things that should make it work, like flexible childcare placements, have not accompanied the changing workplace. Lyndall Strasden is a clinical psychologist and professor at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at Australian National University. So she looks into these things all the time. Hi, Lyndall. How are you?
0: I'm well, thanks. It's great to speak with you.
1: Now, so have we seen a shift to a more casual workforce? Well, the answer is yes
0: and no. We actually, Australia has the second highest rate of casual employment of the OECD, which is the wealthy countries in the world. And that casualisation has been going on since the 80s when we began to deregulate a lot of our labour market. So it's become a feature of our labour market that's quite distinctive, if you like, among the wealthy nations. So... That's the no part of it, which is that we're not necessarily getting more casual according to those sorts of statistics, but we actually are starting from a very, very high base relative to most other wealthy countries. The yes is that we're starting to see a lot of underemployment, a lot of different pressures entering into our labour market, which aren't really picked up well by the statistics yet, but are certainly starting to show up in people's daily lives. And that's, you know, words like the gig economy or the share economy. The idea that people become independent contractors, run their own careers, that a movement away from working for an employer or an organization and starting to work for yourself. And of course, you sort of use that word flexibility in there. Is this what we meant by flexibility? And I think the you know, I think the issue you're raising is this is a different thing again from flexibility. This is talking about I think the gradual but fairly unrelenting shift of risk from the organisation in terms of how it manages its demand and supply and its costs to the actual individual workers. So they take the risk of whether there's work or not, not the organisation. And it's that shift in risk which has driven a new vision of what employment is and what you can expect as a worker in this labour market.
1: You just mentioned then people who might become self-employed through, for example, Uber driving or from the share economy. What kinds of other professions exist in a cohort of this sort of relative instability? I mean, I was thinking of nurses who work shift work, people who have rosters that might change fortnight to fortnight. Would you include them in that sort of mix?
0: Well, so there's insecurity over your income and there's insecurity over your time, if you like. So you might be a nurse and you might not have very predictable working times, but you might have quite a secure job in the sense you've got a contract and it's ongoing. So they're not quite the same thing, but they're both showing up in different ways. And actually, what you're talking about is another very important thing, particularly for parents, is being able to predict when they're going to work. And that's not only in terms of getting income, but also in terms of when they've got time. Because you need to organise your time if you're going to manage care and raising children as well. If you like, there's flexibility, which is depending on from whose perspective that That flexibility is stemming from, is it flexibility to fit around family needs or is it flexibility to fit around market or employer needs? And they are very, very different things in terms of what they do to the individual.
1: Do you think that the flexibility we see now is more driven by employers or by people who are wanting to work around their families?
0: Uh, It's a mixture. And I think we've made some great strides forward in starting to um, accept that when people have a job, they also have a life and they also, many of them, have a family and we want them to have both those things. So I think there has been a gradual shift in terms of some of the policies and efforts that workplaces make and paid parental leave is a good example, a very good example of that. The ability to change the start and stop times. Now, really, currently about a third of Australians don't have that ability, but then quite a, a third definitely had that ability and it's a third who, who sort of sometimes have that ability. So so there's patchiness in terms of how flexible jobs are and for whom they're flexible. I think the biggest problem we've got is that we are, I think, mostly um, making changes at the margins of work in terms of family responsibilities. But often what happens is people trade off flexibility for what you call insecurity. That is, they take a part-time job because it helps them deal with their family care, but actually that part-time job is poorer pay, no promotion prospects, often casual, often they are quite rigid rosters, even though it's part-time. So that they're buying flexibility, if you like, or buying time for family, but at a cost of other aspects of their job. So they're experiencing quite a career trade-off when they are seeking flexibility. And then what you're talking about is really a shift again where that insecurity is becoming a widespread phenomenon that's starting to kind of characterise whole segments of the labour market, which is the casualisation of the workforce and then the emergence of new types of jobs which are around self-employment, share economy, gig work and so on. And there are a bunch of people who are fine under those conditions because often they cobble together a couple of jobs or they've got a permanent job and they're doing the Uber driving or whatever on top of some other job. The problem will become is if those permanent jobs start to shrink and in fact people's capacity to kind of combine these very insecure and tenuous types of jobs with a more stable job starts to get harder and harder. And the other part of that is that those people who have got good skills can probably manage to get reasonably good earnings out of a a gig or, or contract type environment. But once you're competing with a whole lot of other people and your skills don't set you apart from them, then the chances are that will drive down your pay as well.
1: And the other thing about um, working for yourself, and I found this incredibly challenging as did my husband, is not having any sick leave up yep. your sleeve for yourself or yeah. for when your kid gets sick. Yeah. I just spoke to a friend, a school mum friend the other morning who had tonsillitis. She worked for herself. She had to work till nine o'clock that night. And I just know so many people in that situation who to take a day off to look after themselves or their child yeah. means they forego forgo income that they can't afford to lose. Yes. Um,
0: do, do, Definitely. And that's, that, in a way, it's a silent cost to self-employment is that a lot of the benefits that other you know, several hundred years of negotiations that have transformed into sick leave, family leave, annual leave, they aren't there in those jobs. And often that's not so obvious or visible until you actually need them.
1: And are we seeing the effect that that kind of financial insecurity is having on families in terms of not having, I guess, the buffer to fall back on in terms of sick leave and annual leave and all that sort of stuff but also in terms of stress levels not knowing whether they'll be able to make their bill payments or their rent or whatever because they can't budget
0: uh, I think the stress levels are showing up in a range of things one of them is financial stress so I mean as you know home ownership is a hugely difficult issue for Australians and one of the things that I think makes it a kind of double jeopardy is not only do we have very high housing prices but if you don't have a secure and permanent, uh, reasonably permanent job, you can't get a loan. So you've got two problems there. You've got a labour market, which isn't really making it easy for people to get a home. And then you've got extremely high prices in houses. So once you make a commitment to a home, of course, your job security becomes you know, fundamental and it's very stressful. If you, if you can't guarantee that security. And there's a lot of jobs. It's not just for those skilled jobs, and, and you signaled that a bit in your introduction. You know, in very highly skilled jobs, such as academia, for example, job insecurity is a huge problem. It's a problem that's kind of putting little black holes through a whole different patches of, of the social fabric, particularly in the younger generations who are coming into a labour market where... Short-term or casual or short six-term or self-employment is becoming more and more accepted.
1: And if we take it away from the casual workforce and trying to tie together the consequence of those sorts of things, are we able to have an understanding of the impact financial stress can have on families. Like, is that a thing? It feels like when my husband and I were under financial stress, our relationship was much worse, (laughs) which might be stating the obvious, but everything was so much harder and making choices about what we did with our children and what they were able to do and childcare and all those sorts of things. um, It made it very stressful but it wasn't great for our relationship either
0: well this is what i'm saying these are the costs that aren't costed in right this these, these are the things that are so important which we we while we think about you know how to make our businesses profitable we also got to think about how to make our society sustainable and this these sorts of costs are about the latter and and they're not they're related to each other you can't you know, have a, an incredibly profitable business but a society that's not sustainable. That, that doesn't work either. Mm. So it's trying to find that balance between supporting a ways of working that keep us competitive but not at the, at the price of people's health and well-being. That's where I think the national conversation has to go. And, you know, the changing nature of work is going to change families. You've, you know, you've just described what it was doing to your family. And one of the issues is that education doesn't necessarily get you out of that predicament these days. So it's becoming a problem that's it's going to affect lots of people who otherwise might have thought they wouldn't have to confront this. And that, to me, is we have to join those dots together and go, OK, how do we keep a strong and competitive economy while we keep a strong and healthy social fabric and family life because you can't and you shouldn't have one without the other.
1: Do you think things will get better in the future? I mean, how can we, how can we start the conversation?
0: Uh, I think your program is a good way to start. I think it's having these conversations, people starting, because what we're talking about is something that's... that's okay, casualisation has been going on for a little while and you know, for a group of our population, financial pressures have been going on for a long time. But what we're seeing is is it's changing its shape and its form and its spread for people. And I think that it's easy to look at things with hindsight, but we're starting to look at things, we're seeing it coming. So it's hard to get good evidence and data on it because there isn't any, because it needs, you know, you need five or 10 years before you can start to, it will show up in the statistics and the data. But I think the stories are really important and the data will be coming along soon and definitely alerting people to start to think about it and question it and to use a bit of creativity about, well, how do we solve this? Because people can easily go, it's just too hard, we have to do this and accept what can often be quite negative policy decisions. We need to think creatively, okay, so you know we, we have to do something differently here. We, we have to find a way forward out of what seems to be quite a difficult predicament, but just letting it keep happening is not going to improve anybody.
1: Lyndall, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. That's Lyndall Strasden. She's a clinical psychologist and professor at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey there, do you love kindling conversation? Make your voice heard and vote for it at the Australian Podcast Awards. Head to kindling.com.au slash vote. But do it soon because voting closes April 1st.